So we've been looking at this rather long passage. Our focus this afternoon is going to be on the final three verses, which is Luke 18, 28 through 30. I will begin by reading this, and then we will review for a couple of minutes, and then we will get into our study. This is right after Jesus has the encounter with the rich young ruler. He goes away sad. Jesus says how hard it is to enter the kingdom. It's impossible with man. It's possible with God. And Peter said, verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Okay, so a rich young leader comes to Jesus and asks that most important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's the kind of person that the crowds would have assumed was the prime candidate for heaven. He had the blessing of God upon his life, which was demonstrated by his wealth. He was a leader among the Jews, and he was young, and he was devout. And as he approaches Jesus with this question, there are several possibilities as to his motive. Perhaps he's confident in his achievements, and he's just looking for validation from Jesus, maybe even publicly, so he could receive some kind of praise. Maybe he has a tender conscience as, and is concerned that there's still something that's lacking. You know, he's done all these things and he's still not sure. What must I do? What thing am I missing? And we saw that Jesus responds to this young man by pointing him to the Ten Commandments, which we discussed was an odd way to respond to such a question. The good news that Jesus brought is not that obedience to the Ten Commandments can save you, but the law is given to show how guilty we are. It is not a ladder by which we climb up into heaven, it is a mirror which reveals our guilt. And so it becomes evident that Jesus points this man to the law to introduce him to his problem, which is sin so that he might desire the grace that Jesus offers. Grace is what you need from God to supply the standard that he requires. And so Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments to demonstrate his need of grace. And we discover, of course, that only the sick need a physician and only those who are convinced of the disease will actually seek the cure. And the man responds that he has kept God's law. He says, I've, I've kept all of those. He is a stellar example of first century Jewish piety. In his mind, all of those boxes have been checked. I, I've done those things. And then Jesus tells him, one thing you still lack Sell all your possessions and distribute to the poor and come follow me and you will have eternal life. Jesus goes after the one thing that will reveal that this man is not a righteous law keeper as he assumed, 
but that he has put his money and his possessions as first in his life. Jesus goes after the one thing that this man knows he will never surrender. And so he goes away sad. And rather than Jesus encountering a man who was already righteous as the people assumed, he's just like the rest of us. And then Jesus surprises everyone by pointing to him as an example of how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And he uses the most extreme illustration. He says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And the people respond in astonishment, then who can be saved? And Jesus explains to them the severity of the human condition and that it is impossible with man, impossible, but possible with God. And then we saw that last week, that salvation is a divine work, whereas he takes a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins and makes them alive so that they would respond to the call of Jesus, and that apart from a divine miracle, no one will forsake their lives, no one will abandon their possessions, never, no one, it will not happen. And if that sounds provocative to you, you can go back on our website and listen to last week's sermon, if you missed it. So... This is the context here, and who is standing by and looking at all this but the disciples? And so they're witnessing all of this, and their idea of what entrance into the kingdom looks like has just been shattered because the prime candidate, this this Jew who is by all outward appearances just perfect in the eyes of God, has just been barred from the kingdom because he's unwilling to surrender his wealth. And so this leaves the disciples wondering, well, what about us? Now, Peter is the spokesman for the twelve. If you read through the Gospels, he tends to be the one that speaks up. But it's assumed that he's speaking on behalf of the rest of them. And it says in verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, I have a two-point sermon for you. The first point I have titled, An Appropriate Self-Interest. An Appropriate Self-Interest. Because I believe what Peter does here, by bringing this up to Jesus is not typical Peter with his foot-in-mouth disease that he often has, where Peter says the wrong thing and he's very impulsive and it's awkward and he puts himself in weird situations because he's not spiritually minded, that Peter. But I don't think he's being foolish here. In fact, I think he's on to something here. I read some commentators this last week and... A couple of them, you know, oh, Peter, 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 you are just a mess. But I don't see anything 
about this exchange that leads me to think that Peter is out of line. Jesus does not correct him. He does not rebuke him. Peter is wondering if the rich man is not entering the kingdom because he's unwilling to surrender his possessions, what about this group of us who have surrendered our possessions? Where does that leave us? Now that seems like a very reasonable thing to bring up to me. Now let's begin here by remembering that these men have surrendered everything. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, this is the ESV that I'm reading from. The word homes is not in the Greek. Maybe they're trying to encompass everything associated with the home, so you get the bigger picture of what is left behind by these men. But really, things would be closer to the sense of the original language. We have left our things. NIV says, we have left all. King James Version, we have left all. If you look at Matthew's version of this encounter, Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Mark's version says, we have left everything and followed you. Homes tends to make me think of houses, whereas what these men have left behind is far more broad than just houses. We know that Peter, Andrew, James, and John all left their fishing business. If you remember that, they were fishermen. Their livelihood was connected to this vocation. Their families were supported by those vocations. And Jesus comes and he calls them to follow him and they leave it and follow him. We've got that in the Gospels. We know Matthew was a tax collector And his conversion is recorded in the Gospels so that Jesus comes up to him at the tax booth and says, come and follow me. And Matthew leaves the tax collecting business and follows him. Now, we don't know the details of all of these men, but we know that all of them gave up something. I mean, even Judas If you think about it, these men are following Jesus around for three years. They become these itinerant ministers who are going from place to place and they're preaching the good news of the kingdom and they're witnessing miracles and they're seeing people converted and they're part of this movement that requires a radical change of life on their part. So Peter picks up on this rich man's reluctance to leave his life for the kingdom, and then he rightly expresses concern over where that leaves the twelve. Did they leave everything they were supposed to? Have they surrendered themselves to follow Christ in the way that is required? 
Will they have treasure in heaven as Jesus describes in verse 22? What's in it for them? And I think this is an example of an appropriate self-interest. We all know that by nature we are selfish. We come into this world with ourselves at the center. And we all know that a demanding and undisciplined toddler is a menace. And yet that toddler who is marching around demanding everything be his is really just a picture of the human condition. I mean, we age and we mature and that selfishness is still there, but the maturity sort of covers it up a little bit better. We only have tantrums once in a while. And then we come to Christ and, and, and the sin and the selfishness is worse than we thought. And so we spend our days in relationship with God and He is in the process of purging that out from us. And that is a process that will remain until you die. But there is a kind of self-interest that is righteous. There is an appropriate and legitimate self-interest that people should have as it pertains to eternity. In most cases in your life, asking the question, what's in it for me, is the wrong question. That's the kind of thing you're trying to change your thinking about. You, you want to put God first. You want to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to consider others as more important than yourself. And so what's in it for me doesn't usually come to mind as a godly attitude. But when it comes to eternal matters, these are the kinds of things that we should all be concerned about. This is what we wish our unsaved family members and friends would be concerned about. This is the kind of thing the unbeliever is not concerned about. Now, last week I spent a good portion of our time together talking about the watered-down gospel and how it is wrong for the church to try to change, to cater to the unbeliever. That was a big part of the sermon last week. How the message doesn't need to change, the church doesn't need to change. We are not seeking to make the unbelieving as comfortable as possible while withholding the truth. But this doesn't mean that when people hear the gospel, it's absent of self-interest. In fact, the core of the message is that people need to be concerned about their eternal future because there is a hell to be avoided and there is a heaven to be inherited And we want people to think that way. We want people to be selfish in that way. What's going to happen to me? In fact, if you think about it, a lot of the teachings of Jesus are about you having a healthy self-interest. Think of all the times that Jesus speaks about reward in the Gospels. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds out reward for people over and over and over. He wants you to pursue the reward. 
God says he will reward you for everything from giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus to praying in secret. He says if you love your enemies and do good, he, will, he says your reward will be great. He describes standing before the throne and receiving a reward based on how you lived your life for him. We see that in the parables. So there are certain times when having a self-interest is very appropriate and even right. Jesus does not hold out reward for you so that you look at the reward and say, I'm not serving God for the reward. I'm serving God because he's worthy. Now, that's true, that God is worthy. But Jesus is not saying, here, desire this reward so that we would say, oh, that's unspiritual to desire a reward. I'm just going to do it because it's right. No, he wants you to think, I want to be rewarded for that. I want to serve Christ and then have a reward at the end. Who wouldn't want to be? The, who wouldn't want that? He doesn't say, I'm going to reward you so that we say, I'm too spiritual to fall for that one, Jesus. <laughs> I'm just going to serve you because you're worthy. I mean, of course, that's assumed. It's the will of God that you have a self-interest when it comes to the kingdom. Otherwise, he would not describe things in this way. He would not mention reward. He would not talk about the pleasures that are at the right hand of God. He would not talk about the inheritance that he has prepared for you to enjoy. Those all assume a healthy and appropriate self-interest. Now, Peter can thank me in heaven someday because I am defending him right here. This was a good thing to bring up, Peter. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus someday to say to me, good and faithful servant, because you are faithful with little, I will put you over to be faithful with much. Or I will entrust to you much. So there are times when it is absolutely appropriate to have a self-interest. And Peter, I believe, does here. So now that we got that out of the way, the second point, and there's only two, Jesus is going to give us an astonishing disclosure. So you have an appropriate self-interest in Peter, and then there is this astonishing disclosure. I'm going to just go back up a little bit and just read the whole thing again from verse 28. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, this is Jesus, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus discloses to them that not only will they gain eternal life for leaving their life behind for His sake, 
but they will even benefit by gaining more in this life now. The gospel benefits that Jesus promises are not merely future, they are present. That's what he says here. Now, as we are going to get into this list, I'm not going to take too much time with it, but we are going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what the disciple might need to leave behind to follow Christ. I want to be really clear about what this is not describing. This is not Jesus calling a man or a woman to abandon those who are dependent on them for the sake of the gospel. This is not Jesus calling people to forsake their Christian duty to their family so that they can go serve God somewhere else. But maybe you read through this and, well, it kind of sounds like he's saying that. I mean, if you're going to leave all these things for Jesus, that kind of does sound like you're leaving your family behind. Well, he talks about leaving, but as I've been thinking through this text, there's really two kinds of leaving. So I'll start with the most obvious one. There is leaving earthly prosperity. Do I have a slide on this one? Sort of. Yes, but I don't want to go there yet. Leaving earthly prosperity for the sake of following Christ. That seems like the most obvious reading. You're leaving earthly things to follow Jesus. There are times when Jesus calls us to leave our homes to follow Him. Houses, neighborhoods, communities that we grew up in. There are times that Jesus calls us to leave the cities we love, the, the environment that we're very comfortable in, to serve Him in some other place. So G Peter and the disciples, for example, Jesus calls them, come and follow Me, and He makes them itinerant ministers, and they leave their businesses, and they leave their houses, and they leave their comfortable and safe environments, and they forge out into the unknown, and Jesus might call men and women to do that. But that is not equivalent to saying Jesus is calling people to abandon their family to come and follow Him. This is what many of the cults teach. The cults break up families. They divide family relationships, especially those many cults that came out of the 1970s. Lesser known cults, but the, the more radical ones that interpret this as you cannot have any family relationship, you have to come with us. And so they cut off their parents, they cut off uh, marriages if, they, if the spouse was not willing to also join them. And that is not what this text intends to teach. Now this is, this is why understanding all of Scripture is necessary and we don't want to take one verse or one passage and make it say something that God never intended. So let's use Peter as an example. Peter left his livelihood, he left his business, he left his home. But does that mean that Jesus called Peter to abandon his family? Well, 
Paul talks about Peter and his family in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is responding to his critics. In verse 4, he says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is another name for Peter. So notice, Peter took a wife and the other apostles. And they took them along. So this, we don't have this in the Gospels. We don't have this in the book of Acts. But the work that the apostles were doing in the world was not apart from their spouses. That's what I get from 1 Corinthians 9.5. Jesus was not calling them to abandon those relationships so that they could, so that an individual can go serve him in another place. Here's another place where Paul addresses this, 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So notice, Paul assumes that a disciple, even one who is called into full-time vocational ministry, will one, have a family, and two, will be providing for that family. And if he doesn't, he is worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. Worse. So Paul warns against the person who names the name of Christ but would do something so dishonorable as to leave his covenant obligations behind. Or to leave those children that God has given to him to train and disciple and to leave them vulnerable to navigate this world on their own without their father so that you can go serve God in some other place. It's not biblical. That's not what is being presented here. Now, there are times when Jesus calls us to abandon relationships. He calls us to abandon possessions. There are times that Jesus calls us to forsake earthly prosperity, whether it be jobs or houses or friendships. And in some cases, through much pleading and tears, even family relationships, if such a relationship prevents you from following Christ. But what Jesus does not do is call a person to this kind of separation that is a separation from obligation. A man who is called to the mission field cannot serve Christ in another country while at the same time abandoning the wife and children that God gave to him. Now I'm just I'm making a point of this here because I want you to know that when we read this text about Jesus saying whoever leaves this 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 I want you to have it in your mind Jesus is not <laughs> his focus is not to just go around and just break up families. 
If a man thinks he is called to serve God in a foreign country, and if his wife is unwilling, or if she needs more time, or if she doesn't think it's the right time, or if she is uncertain about God's calling for this, the man is not to forge off on his own. All in the name of the kingdom of God. I think of our friends, the Beast family in Kenya. They've been here a couple times now. God gives Jeff a burden for Africa. They're in Texas. They've got a nice house. They've got a bunch of kids. Jeff's got a good job. And he just can't seem to shake this burden he has for Africa. Never been there, knows nothing about it, can probably find it on a map, but that's the extent of it. And the more he begins to think about it, the more he begins to research it, the more he begins to talk to his wife about it. Now, Stephanie, God bless her, she's just so honest. She didn't like the idea at all at first. She's like, what are you talking about Africa? But the Lord began to work in his heart and he began to work in her heart. And so the more they prayed about it, the more that Jeff talked about it, she got to the point where God so softened her heart that she was all in without even having visited there. Jeff had gone there twice and she said, you know what, I don't need to go there. Let's, let's do it. Let's go. She was so convinced of her husband leading her in the direction that they're supposed to go that she was all in and put their house on the market even though it was three months after that that she first stepped foot on African soil. So they sold all of, our thing, all of their things. They moved to Kenya. But the point is Jeff didn't do it at the expense of his family. He was patient and he was wise and he, was, he waited and he's looking for God's will to take place and he's probably observing how his wife is going to respond to this because if it's not God's will, he might do that through his wife. And so his wife, her heart is toward, turned toward Africa also. Seven of their ten kids go on to the mission field with them. So there's a time when Jesus will call people to leave their vocation, their home, their possessions, but it is never a call to abandon your Christian duty to your family or to renounce your marriage covenant to go and serve God. Those two things do not make sense. They are not compatible. So that's the first kind of leaving. There's a leaving for God calls us to leave earthly prosperity. Sometimes He does not call us to leave covenantal obligations. But there's another kind of leaving that I want you to think about as we look through this text again, and that is a leaving when they leave you. I mean, this is a reality that Jesus told us about, that if you choose to follow Him, those people in your life may choose to to leave you. They may say, if you are going to follow Christ, then you will not have us in your life anymore. Or, 
a wife might say, I don't like that you became a Christian, and I will not allow our relationship to continue if you remain a Christian. Now, this is that leaving when those most important people in your life cut you off because you follow Christ. And as we read through this text again in a minute, I want you to think about that as an option also. Because when Jesus says, whoever has left this and has left this and has left this, some of those things might not be even be that person's choice. But he's doing it because Christ is calling. This is the kind of calling where you cannot say, okay, I'm going to choose my family over Christ. I hope you notice the difference. One is a committed Christian who, who believes he's supposed to serve God somewhere else and he, 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 he leaves his family who is unwilling to go. But in this other situation, you have a man who wants to follow Jesus, but the family members say, no, no, no. And if you do that, we are cutting you off. Which was probably commonplace in the first century. If you think about this religious system that all of these Jews were under and that these new believers are coming to Jesus as as God's Messiah, as Israel's Savior, and their Jewish family says, if you follow that person, you are cut off from our family. That was probably commonplace in the first century. This is the same kind of leaving that takes place in Muslim countries today. If you're raised Muslim and you convert to Christianity, you do so with the knowledge that you will not be taking your family along with you. It is very clear that if you turn away from Islam, you are essentially cutting off all of those relationships that you've known your whole life. That's the gospel in some of those countries. You're following Christ and you know you have to leave it all behind. It's not your will to leave your wife or your children or your parents. It's not your will. It's not what you want. But to, to, to come to Christ sometimes requires that kind of radical decision. It's like the Opening scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is heading to the celestial city. He's got this calling on his life. He needs to unload this burden that he has. And his family thinks he's crazy. And he knows he has to go to the this, this, this celestial city because theirs is the city of destruction and judgment is coming and they don't want to go with him. So leaving a life behind is not always you leaving them. Sometimes it's them leaving you. And both require an abandoning of your former life. So back to Peter's statement. Where does that leave them? And this is where we get this astonishing disclosure from Jesus. He said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children 
for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus responds to Peter by telling him that not only will he and the disciples inherit the eternal life that the rich young ruler forsook, but that God is going to return to him anything that he left behind and he's going to return it to him in this life. He's not saying, Peter, you know, someday in heaven, you, you know, everything's going to be great and it's all going to be healed. Everything's going to be... He's saying he, God is going to give it back to him in this life. Matthew and Mark both say a hundredfold meaning a hundred times what you left. You left this, God's going to replace it in this life a hundred times. Now, this will be helpful, I think, to compare the other Gospels because when you look at them all together, the picture becomes a little more clear. So, Luke 18.29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now when you bring in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 19.29, it's a little bit different. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold. So here Matthew adds, or has sisters, and instead of parents, he puts father or mother, and he also includes lands. Then you get to Mark's list, Mark 10, 29, and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, same as Matthew, but reversed that order, or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, and then he repeats the list. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So these aren't contradictions. This is part of a discourse that Jesus gave and the witnesses are getting parts of it and Recording it differently. You get the big picture, but there's nuance here. So Mark mentions leaving mother and father, but then he doesn't mention father when he repeats the list. Mark also has lands, and then he also mentions persecution. So just to get the big picture here, to pull back, Jesus says that if you left your house for him, you will get a hundred in return. And he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about now. 
Jesus says that if you have left brothers or sisters for him, you will get a hundred in return now. He's going to replace what was lost. Jesus says that if you have left parents or that if you have left children, you will get a hundred in return now. Now, what on earth is he talking about? Is this like Creflo Dollar on television who's telling me I'm supposed to be rich if I'm a Christian? And if I'm not rich, it's because I don't have enough faith? And that Jesus really means I'm supposed to have houses all over the place, like in the Bahamas and Beverly Hills and all the rest? Or does Jesus, is this kind of a referring back to Job? You remember Job had all that loss in the beginning of his story. He loses his house, he loses his children, he loses everything. And then at the end of the story, everything's restored to him even more. Or is Jesus referring to this invisible community called the church where everything that you have left behind now becomes multiplied in this new spiritual family of God? This is what makes sense of it all. Jesus says, did you leave a brother behind? God will give you a hundred brothers, even those that are closer than flesh and blood. Did you leave behind sisters or mothers or children? Jesus says, I will give you a spiritual family with mothers and sisters and children and brothers who will love you more than any family earthly relationship that you have. Now, when you go through the list again and everything that's repeated, there's two things that aren't repeated. Wives and fathers. Wives is not on the list because wives involves a special covenantal commitment that cannot be replicated in the local church. So it would be very odd for Jesus to say, if you come to the church, I'll give you a hundred wives. Sounds too Mormon for me. but he also doesn't repeat fathers because God is our Father. God is our true Father. But do you see the picture here? What God gives back to us is many times more than that which we surrendered to follow Christ. You gave up a brother to follow Jesus, God gives you a hundred more. You gave up a house to follow Jesus. You are given a hundred open doors in your new family. Now, we in America tend to be very individualistic. I would say all all of Western culture. And we very much need to learn more of the communal love ethic of the first century. The first century in the book of Acts is a beautiful picture. In the early church, of course, we read the letters and we realize, wow, they were really sinful just like we are. But there is a communal aspect in, in, we see in the early church in the book of Acts that we in America need to learn and 
understand and practice, I believe. But the picture here is that we become born of the same Spirit so that we have an eternal relationship with one another so that as we are each connected to Christ, we are also each connected to one another. And the fruit of that relationship is love and service and sacrifice and a building up of one another and it becomes more profound and more wonderful and more eternally significant than any temporal family relationship that you will have on earth. And so rather than leaving things behind for Jesus as being lost, the astonishing disclosure is that it's really gain. You gain the body of Christ. You gain the family of God. And then Jesus says after that, guess what? Eternal life. Unspeakable joy in the presence of God and His people, sinless, blameless, forever. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for Your great and precious promises. We thank You, Lord, that we not only have unspeakable joy promised to us in the future, in Your presence, but we have been given a family on earth that we are to learn from and to love and to sacrifice for and to interact with and to teach and to bless. And this family works together in unity for our good and Your glory. And so Lord, help us to see the wonder that surrounds us Help us to obey and step out of our comfort zone and to get to know others in the body and have deep and meaningful relationships with them. Help us to die to ourselves and deny ourselves and be built up in love as we all come together as self-denying members of this body. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.